wrote about sports fanatics, which, by the way, is what the word fan is short for, in case you're wondering, um, and the lengths to which they would go to support their teams. One category they had in the article was called frequent flyers, and eight times a season, a fellow named Gio Vernum makes a 5,000-mile round trip from Philadelphia to Seattle eight times a season, a 5,000-mile trip to watch his beloved Seattle Seahawks play at, at Quest Field. Eight times a year, 5,000 miles. Um, there's a fellow named Lou Rathsidi. He leaves New Jersey on a Friday night and takes a vacation day on Mondays to make every Dallas Cowboys home game from New Jersey. He's a truck driver. He admits that the $500 a pop weekends are barely affordable. This is what he says. I started when I was single. I got married. I still continued it. And now I'm divorced. You think, right? <laughs> Lou? Um, he says, it's survived through all that, and I managed to find the money and time to go. Uh, Lou is a fanatic, uh, we would say. There's a, there was a... Uh, sports radio station that asked this question to their listeners, said, if somebody offered you $2 million, could you give up sports for two years? No, no games on TV, radio, or in person, no sports page, no ESPN highlight films, no Tuesday morning arguing about Monday night football. One fan phoned in and said, no, he would definitely not give up sports, not even for $25 million. He said, it's where I turn when I pick up the paper in the morning. It's where I go when I'm on the internet. It's what I watch on television. It's what I listen to on the radio in the car. Everywhere I go, it surrounds everything I do. Now, whatever else you might say about these super fans, right, they are, they are devoted, right? They're devoted to their teams. They are committed Maybe they should be committed, but, but they are committed people. Um, R.C. Sproul says he once read the following definition of a fanatic. A fanatic is a person who, having lost sight of his goal, redoubles his efforts to get there. The fanatic runs around frantically getting nowhere. He's a basketball player without a basket, a tennis player without a net, a golfer without a green. For a Christian to make progress in learning to please God, he must have a clear idea of what his goal is. And so Jesus tells us what our great devotion in life must be. He tells us what matters most. In John chapter 12, he says, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than this. Let me, let me back that up just a little bit. I don't think we have the full quote there. It says in verse 28, one of the scribes came up and heard people disputing with Jesus and seeing that he answered them well, he asked Jesus, which commandment is the most important of all? And Jesus answered, the most important is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. And the second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And the scribe said to him, you're right, teacher. 
You have truly said that he is one, and there is no other besides him. And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding and with all the strength and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more important than whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. Jesus tells us that our great devotions are to lie in the area of loving God and loving neighbor. That, that is what we are to be devoted to. It's, it's reflected in the North Wake mission statement that reads like this. Our mission is to reach the lost and equip them to join with us in the process of becoming what we call a mature and ministering worship, worshiper of God. And we define a mature and ministering worshiper of God as someone who is devoted to growing in three great loves. Okay? They can be represented this way. A love for God, a love for the church, and a love for neighbor, that is, neighbors who are outside of the faith. And this year, our annual focus is on growing in devotion to these three great loves. Now, some of you, just by way so you aren't distracted, some of you are thinking, where's family? Isn't family a great love we're supposed to have? They are in circles two and three. They're either in the church or they're a neighbor outside the church. They're in there, and they're vital to it. But when Jesus says, love God and love neighbor, we've broken it out into these three circles of relationship. And what I want to do this morning is introduce you to three people from the pages of the Scripture whose lives and their writing challenge us to be devoted, increasingly devoted to these three great loves. So if you'll bow with me, we'll walk through these three things together. Let's, let's pray. Father, we want to pray this morning for kindness and mercy from you upon us through your word. Um, and we, we want to give you permission to reorder our hearts and reorder our lives away from perhaps fanatical devotions to lesser things to even greater devotion to these three great things. Help us, Lord, set our course that we might walk with you and honor you ever increasingly this year. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. All right, circle one is loving God. Okay, that's, that's kind of where it all starts. And we describe it this way in our mission statement. We want to be a people who love God in worship. We want to see every follower of Christ established in a growing relationship with God that's marked by a wholehearted pursuit of God the development of Christ-like character, and a life of, of worship. Now, perhaps throughout all of Scripture, there may be no one who models devotion and love for God better than King David in the Old Testament. David was, uh, maybe you know his story, he's the youngest of eight sons. You probably know him best as the giant killer, right? He's the one who slew Goliath. But the scriptures refer to him by kind of a different nickname. Um, I, I don't know. Did you, guys, did you guys have nicknames when you were growing up? Some of you still have them. Go by them. Do you have nicknames? I had a nickname when I was in high school. They called me Chops. Some of you wonder why. <laughs> no. The closest I ever got to a back black belt was what held up my pants. Um, <laughs> I was, a, I was a trumpet player in high school, and that's another way to refer to your embouchure. And if you don't know what an embouchure is, you 
watching entirely too much sports. So, um, David's nickname is found, interesting, both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. Um, here it is uh, from the book of 1 Samuel in the Old Testament. Samuel says to King Saul, Samuel's a prophet, and he says to then King Saul, you have done foolishly. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God with which he commanded you. For then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever, but now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. And the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. So the Lord has now chosen a king who is to be a man after his own heart. And that man is none other than David. What, what does it mean to be a man or a woman after God's own heart? What, what would that look like? One writer described it this way. They said, David has a heart that is after the Lord's heart. God and his king are to have a heart-to-heart relationship, an intense bond of love and intimacy. David had a heart that was like his father and a heart that loved his, his father. And that's one implication that comes out of this is that David knew God and he loved him. Uh, there was a singer a long time ago, his name is Mac Davis. He penned um, kind of tongue-in-cheek a little lyric that simply said, to know me is to love me. And, and this, is, this is actually true about God. And David represents it beautifully, and he writes about it in Psalm 18. This is a psalm of David, the servant of the Lord, who addressed the words of this song to the Lord on the day when the Lord rescued him from the hand of all his enemies and from the hand of Saul. He said, I love you, O Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. I call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised, and I am saved from my enemies. When was the last time you declared to the Lord that you loved him? It's interesting, there was a, uh, there's a guy named Drew Dyke. He, he described a, a TV commercial. Perhaps you've seen it. Young man, he's struggling with whether to go through what was his country's t- tradition of an arranged marriage. In his home country, arranged marriages were the norm, but he is living in America, and he's having second thoughts about adhering to this ancient custom, especially since he'd never met or even seen his, his wife-to-be. And still, when she flew into the airport, he dutifully waited for her, flowers in hand, gloomy expression on his face. But when she stepped through the terminal, everything changed because she was a remarkable beauty. And suddenly, his glum demeanor disappeared. The thought of marrying this woman was no longer a dreaded duty. It was a delight. And what had changed? He had seen her. Drew writes, often we serve God out of obligation. We drag ourselves to church, force ourselves to serve others, but our hearts aren't in it. We're like that guy at the airport grudgingly holding flowers for God. We're trying to live holy lives because we know we should, but it's burdensome and joyless. What can change this, he says? Seeing God. When we get a vision of who God truly is, we're suddenly energized 
to do his mission. Once we gaze upon his grandeur and glory, obedience ceases to be arduous. Once we grasp his great love, serving is no longer a duty, it's a joy. And David not only saw God in his beauty, but he knew God. And he knew him to be beautiful. And God was his satisfaction. Yet he wasn't satisfied with how well he knew God. He longed to know him more. So David wrote Psalms 1. Daniel already quoted this morning that many of you are familiar with. He writes in Psalm 27. One thing I have asked of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire of his temple. He also wrote Psalm, this is Psalm 63. It's a Psalm of David. He says, O God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory, because your steadfast love is better than life. My lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. In your name, I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food, and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips when I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night, for you have been my help. And in the shadow of your wings, I will sing for joy. David knew God and was satisfied by him, and he loved him. And as a result, he has this incredible, insatiable passion to worship him with radically, the Bible records, radically generous acts of worship on David's part. Here's an example. This is from um, 1 Chronicles chapter 29. David is saying, in addition to all that I have provided for the holy house, they're building God's house, the temple. I have a treasure of my own. This is David's personal giving towards this building of this temple. I have a treasure of my own of gold and silver, and because of my devotion to the house of my God, I give it to the house of my God. 3,000 talents, that's 100 tons of gold, of the gold of Ophir, and 7,000 talents, that's 250 tons of refined silver for overlaying the walls of the house, and for all the work to be done by craftsmen, gold for the things of gold, and silver for the things of, of silver. And then he says... Who then will offer willingly, consecrating himself today to the Lord? Um, David's offering is measured by the tonnage. Okay. His heart is so full of love for God. And then he writes lyrics like this. This is from Psalm 145, also a psalm of David. He says, I will extol you, my God and King, and bless your name forever and ever. Every day I will bless you and praise your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord, greatly to be praised, and his greatness is unsearchable. See, David loved God, and it fueled his worship. He knew him, and he loved him, and it fueled worship, and it fueled radical obedience. Not perfectly. If you know his story, his obedience had its downside at points. But he was known as a man after God's own heart. And central to that is someone who would obey God. It's interesting. Look at 
Acts 13 with me. This is where that expression, a man after God's own heart, happens in the New Testament with respect to David. They're recounting the history of Israel. It says, they asked for a king, and God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin for 40 years. And when he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, of whom God testified and said, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart, who will do all my will. See, those two things are, are very close together. A man after God's heart is a man who wants to obey God. It's obedience rooted in love. And David, by his passionate example, is inviting you and me this year to be devoted to loving God, to grow in our devotion to love God more than we ever have. He simply says in Psalm 31, Love the Lord, all you saints. He's inviting us, follow my example. Devote yourself to loving God more. St. Augustine said, Christ is not valued at all unless he is valued above all. This year, will you devote yourself to loving God more, to being devoted to that? Jesus says, it is the most important thing you could do. Now, second circle that we're going to walk through this year, our first, uh, first three months of the year, we'll be focusing on teaching related to loving God. Then we'll move over the summer months into loving the church. Um, and again, our mission statement describes it this way. We want to be a people who love one another in community. We believe every member of the body is uniquely gifted by the Spirit to serve God, minister effectively and humbly to other members, and advance His kingdom. It is our intention to build a body of Christ-centered believers fully devoted to serving one another through relationships full of grace and truth that lead to Christ-honoring friendships. See, this, this second circle calls us to be devoted to loving God's people, loving the church, who is the very bride of Christ. And it flows necessarily and sufficiently out of that first circle. A wholehearted love for God is a fuel for loving one another. And I, I don't know any writer in Scripture who's better at writing winsomely about both of these loves than the Apostle John. Um, John was one of the 12 disciples, and he was also part of an inner circle of three, along with James and Peter, who often spent time alone with Jesus, and he's come to be known to us by his own pen, in all likelihood, as the disciple Jesus loved. Okay, that's kind of his nickname. So it's no surprise that someone who experienced the love of Christ so intimately should pass it along to others so passionately. And John writes most beautifully, I think, and most powerfully in two chapters of one of his letters. In 1 John, Chapters 3 and 4, he writes extensively about love. Let me just give you a sampling from those chapters. He says, see what kind of love the Father has given, the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. Down in verse 10 of chapter 3. 
By this it is evident that those who, are those who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil, whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. For this is the message you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and truth. In chapter 4, he writes, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Skip down to verse 18. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. Okay? And that's just a sampling in chapters 3 and 4. I'm being selective. About every other verse is about the way God loves us, and how that's supposed to fuel the way we love one another. But from these two chapters, we find vital encouragement to being devoted to loving the church. Um, first, we see that it's, it's the authenticating, it is the authenticating mark of a true Christian. Okay. He says in verse 10 of chapter 3, as we just saw, by this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil? Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. We also read these verses in chapter 4. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. This love for the church, for the people, in our case, in this room, is the authenticating mark of a Christian. Francis Schaeffer called it the mark of a Christian. Now, as I was preparing to teach this morning, I ran across a statistic that there are 85 million people in the United States who are unchurched Christians. That is, they claim to be Christian, but they have no involvement in the church. And I'm going to assume no evident love for the church. A lot of them are happily unchurched Christians, boastfully unchurched Christian. Here's an excerpt from a blog. She writes, my faith in, in God is unfaltering and moreover strengthened since leaving the church behind. Um, they even have their own Facebook page, Unchurched Christians Fellowship Group, which, which is every bit as odd as it sounds, right? Um, and I know, I'm mindful that the church has been a hurtful thing in a lot of people's lives, and they... And, and they 
they're so deeply hurt they can barely approach the church, and I'm mindful of that. But to the kind of thinking that says, I can be a Christian just fine on my own, thank you. John, the apostle of love, has strong warnings. Listen again from 1 John 4. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother, whom he has seen, cannot love God, whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. Um, Eugene Peterson um, is an author. He put it even stronger. He says, love cannot exist in isolation. Away from others, love bloats into pride. Grace cannot be received privately, cut off from others. It is perverted into greed. Hope cannot develop in solitude, separated from the community. It goes to seed in the form of fantasies. No gift, no virtue can develop and remain healthy apart from the community of faith. Outside the church, there is no salvation, it said. He says that's not ecclesiastical arrogance, but spiritual common sense confirmed in everyday experience. Loving one another is the great assuring mark of our faith that we love our brothers and sisters in the church. And not just that, it's a command. You probably picked up on that already. 1 John 3, this is his commandment, God's commandment, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as he has commanded us. And John here is, as you can tell, he's virtually quoting Jesus. It's back in the Gospel of John, also written by John. In chapter 13, Jesus says, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. And if we were to turn just a page past this fourth chapter, John's going to say again, and again, he's quoting Jesus here, this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. You know, John is teaching us here that these two circles, these first two circles, loving, loving God and loving the church, are inseparably bound together. It's how we reflect his love and it's how we love him back. Okay. This is how we love God, by loving one another. Jesus did say, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. Okay. Now, Frederick, Frederica Matthews Green is an author, and she writes that the main evidence that we are growing in Christ is not exhilarating prayer experiences, but steadily increasing humble love for other people. Okay. That is the mark of a Christian. Now, John, in his writings, also connects this second circle, love for one another, love for the church, with love for those outside the church, with, with our neighbors who are not part of our faith. Down in 1 John 4, again, starting in verse 10, he says, "In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent us to be the propitiation, the great satisfying sacrifice 
for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, he says. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is, <clears throat> excuse me, perfected in us. Again, he's saying that if you want to see what God is like, watch how my people love each other. That's how you see God. Again, he is he's quoting Jesus virtually here. Excuse me. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. By this, Jesus says, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. And I don't think my back button is working. I think I only have one button, and I'm wildly clicking through the rest of my slides. I apologize. If you can take it back to 1 John 4, 10 to 12, that'd be a big help. Thank you. So again, clearly John is showing us how essential it is that we love one another, that we love the church, but he's saying it in a new way. Our witness hinges on it. Jesus says, by this all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Okay. S. Lewis Johnson explains this passage in 1 John 4. He says, when you see a Christian brother loving another Christian brother or sister, truly loving, truly loving in the sense of the scriptures, then you have seen God in that individual. See, a watching world finds it hard to believe that we worship a God of love if we do not love each other. This year, we are going to be calling you to a greater devotion a greater love for the people in this room okay? to truly grow in loving the people in this room. And as we've already hinted at, this third circle, loving our neighbors outside of our faith, really hangs on this. Um, love of neighbor. And we write about it this way in our mission statement. Loving our neighbors in witness. We desire to build authentic, loving relationships with our friends, family, neighbors, coworkers, and acquaintances. Our hope is that God would then use our words and deeds to bring many people into a relationship of trust with Jesus Christ. We want to purposefully extend these relationships to include those who are yet to hear about Christ around the world so that all peoples will know. And just um, as David and John have been exemplary for us in those first two circles, one of the great examples to neighbor love, and one of the most challenging ones for me, is the Apostle Paul, what he writes in just about three verses in Romans chapter 9. Listen to what he says. He says, I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit. So you get a sense, what he's about to say is pretty darn important, and he thinks it's true, right? He says, I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. 
Paul has a great sorrow for his fellow Jews. That's who he has in mind when he says, my kinsmen according to the flesh. For his fellow Jews here who do not share his faith in Christ yet. They were his people, his kinsmen. And at the same time, they're his most bitter adversaries. They were literally his enemies who tried to have him killed. You read through the book of the Acts, and the Jews were following him from city to city, trying to kill him. This is not an easy bunch of neighbors to love, okay? The ones who are trying to kill you. But Paul says he has great sorrow and unceasing anguish over the fact that they don't know Christ. And that sorrow drives him to fervent prayer. If you were to flip to the very next chapter, the very first verse of chapter 10, Paul says, Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them, for my unbelieving Jewish kinsmen, is that they may be saved. Okay. He is praying this kind of fervent prayer for his enemies, for people who, who wished him dead. ran across a, a fascinating story. Some of you are familiar with it. It comes from our, uh, our country's history. Um, it's the story of a young girl named Ruby Bridges. There's a movie about her. bears the same name. Um, it's the story of a six-year-old girl who in 1960 became the first person of color in the U.S. to attend an all-white school. And as you can see, she had to be escorted in and out of the school um, by Secret Service agents just to keep this six-year-old girl safe. By federal law, Ruby faced overwhelming social adversity in segregationist New Orleans, Louisiana when she went to school. And in the movie, Ruby, you see Ruby walking through the angry crowd outside the school with four federal agents around her. She goes up the steps, she suddenly turns around, walks down a few steps, stops, and appears to say something to the crowd, and the agents try to coax her back up the steps. She resists for a moment, her lips still moving, and there's a psychiatrist in the film that you can see. He's offered his services to the family. He's watching this. Ruby then turns around, she's escorted into the school, and in the next scene, Ruby is sitting down with this psychiatrist. Um, and having a conversation in their, in the fam, around the family kitchen table. She's coloring in a coloring book. He says, um, Honey, what did you say? I saw you talking to those people. Did you finally get angry with them? Did you tell them to just leave you alone? And Ruby answers, No, I didn't tell them anything. I didn't talk to them. And the psychiatrist says, But Ruby, I was there. I saw your lips moving. She said, I wasn't talking to them. I was praying for them. The doctor's a bit startled. He says, praying for them? She says, yes, I pray for them every day in the car, but I forgot that day. She says, oh, what, what prayer did you say? Ruby puts down her color. She folds her hands together, and she says, please, God, forgive these people, because even if they say these mean things, they don't know what they're doing. So you can forgive them, just like you did those folks a long time ago when they said terrible things about you. 
Paul is teaching us by his example of praying for his people, the people he loves, even in their unbelief, even in their violence against him. That he loves them such that he is committed to praying for them and willing to make a great sacrifice on their part. He says, I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers. It's as though he's saying, I, I could wish that I was a hell-bound sinner if it would mean that they could be free. That's how much Paul loves. You know, elsewhere in the book of Acts, we see this played out in Paul's life. Um, in Acts chapter 21, Paul comes to the steps in a public scenario, and he's carried by soldiers because of the violence of the crowd around him. He's in Jerusalem. He's surrounded by Jewish opposition to his message. For the mob of people followed him, crying out, Away with him! And as Paul was about to be brought into the barracks, he said to the tribune, the, the arresting officer, May I say something to you? And he said, Do you know Greek? Are you not the Egyptian then, who recently stirred up a revolt and led the 4,000 men of the assassins out into the wilderness? Paul replied, I'm a Jew. From Tarsus in Cilicia, a citizen of no obscure city, I beg you, permit me to speak to the people. And so, facing violence that he was only saved by means of a military intervention to rescue him, Paul is begging to be able to go back out and speak to those same people who desired to kill him. So great is Paul's love for his neighbors who don't believe. Paul understands that he has been loved by God in orders that others might be loved in the same way. He writes about it in 1 Timothy 1. He says, The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason. That in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. Paul says, I have been given the love of God so that others might, by my example, believe as well. John Piper challenges us to love like Paul when he writes, we must feel compassion for the perishing and a longing for their conversion because our own salvation is such a precious, undeserved gift. Surely it is unthinkable, he says, that we should be drugged from the bottom of the lake, resuscitated at the cost of another's life, handed the instruments of rescue, and then just sit down and play cards on the beach while others are drowning. Is that not unthinkable in your own life? See, our devotion to that first circle requires and fuels the second two. A love for God wholeheartedly means we must love our neighbor both inside and outside of our church family. So we're going to be this year calling you to a greater devotion to these three great loves. Love of God, love of the church, and love of neighbor. 
C.S. Lewis puts it this way. He says, Christianity, if false, is of no importance. And if true, of infinite importance. The one thing it cannot be is moderately important. Will you embrace the challenge this year to grow in your devotion to these three great loves that are right at the core of what it means to be a Christ follower? Let me pray for us as a worship team comes to lead us in our close. Father, have mercy now upon us. Seems like we're good at loving one thing, and that's me. Help us. Teach us. Show us how to love you with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. May our church be marked by that. May every family be marked by that. May each one who names your name and calls Northwake home be marked by that this year. And may that increase our compassion and love for our brothers and sisters who are in our small groups and in our life change classes and who serve with us and who sit with us in this room. Give us eyes of compassion as we look across the fence and across the hedge and across the street in our neighborhoods and across the cubicle at work and across the world to people who have never heard the name of Jesus before. Lord, reorder our hearts like David and John and Paul that our loves might be these three, that our devotion might be these three. We ask this in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen.